We're going to go ahead and get started, just no rush now. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles tonight, and you would, find uh, Jeremiah 50 with me. And uh, we really have two chapters tonight, and I'm really going to try not to read all... Um, a hundred and four verses to you tonight. So I will try to give you an overview of the sections and to look at some of them. But if I get into a massive reading program, just holler at me and tell me that you've heard enough. But tonight I want to talk to you about the simple premise that I think a lot of people struggle with. And that is, we live in a fallen world, and it seems many times that people who don't love God, who uh, blasphemy God, who live in a way that God doesn't matter, uh, seem to sometimes prosper. And the people that, who have served God and served the church and who we would consider fine Christian people, things happen to them. We ask ourselves that question of why. But tonight, when we look at the judgment of Babylon, we look at a nation that God used for His purposes. And so many times, and I know I've mentioned this either last Wednesday night or a few Sunday nights ago, that people think just because God has used them that they are right with God. And uh, I think, I can't remember if it was Sunday night or, or Wednesday night, and and we talked about, the Bible even says, that the rocks will cry out. Uh, that we see in the Old Testament that God, that God can use a, a donkey. And so, so many times we equate what God's love looks like as the results that He provides in our life. Or that God is pleased with us just because we are seeing God do things. But yet that is actually not true. Because God can use someone that is wicked for His purposes. God can elevate people that don't love Him, but because He has a purpose and a bigger plan to accomplish, that He uses them. And so, you can apply that to every area of life. You can apply it at work. You can apply it in families. You can apply it as a nation. That God is working out everything behind the scenes. And so tonight, I really want us to think about that in our walk with the Lord as an individual and as a church, that just because I am blessed, just because God has used me, doesn't mean that I am right with Him. And so tonight, I want us to really focus in on this idea that my relationship with the Lord is something that I have to know that I have that He is my Lord and Savior, and that as we're starting the book of Job on our nightly devotions, that whether it is difficulties or whether it is times of abundance, neither one of those are an indication of my salvation. Material blessings, and I hope that you'll know this, are never the soul-defining factor in your relationship with God. Some of the most wonderful Christian people, when you get to heaven, will have had nothing on this earth. But yet there will also be some of the finest Christian people that had millions and millions of dollars. Because neither one of those are indications of the relationship that God has with you. 
It's just like churches. There are many churches that are faithfully serving God, that are, that are going through great difficulties and trials. And, and when God um, gives their final evaluation one of these days, many of them will hear, well done, thy good and faithful servants, even if they didn't have a $70 million complex and a $13 million budget. And so uh, there are churches that are huge that will be honoring and pleasing to God. And so I really want us to to separate those out tonight and look at this nation that God used, but that God was not their Lord and Savior. And so if you're taking notes tonight, verses 1 through 10, I want you to hear that no one is exempt from the judgment of God. No one is exempt against the judgment of God. Look what it says there in verse 1. The word that the Lord spoke against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet. So he's speaking specifically to them. But listen to what he says. Declare among the nations, proclaim and set up a standard. Proclaim, do not conceal it. Say, Babylon is taken. And so I want you to hear this tonight because I think this is very important. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that when someone speaks for God, a prophet in the Old Testament, if he prophesies and it doesn't come true, the Bible calls that person a what? A false prophet. And what we see here is that God wants this declaration to be declared everywhere. And you say, why does that matter? Because in this day and age, the idea that Babylon would fall would have been unimaginable. Right? It is like the ideal for many years to think that America could be brought to its knees like it is. Right? You think about that and, and the prosperity and the blessings that we have. We have a nation full of everything that you could ever want. People and resources and, and an abundance of everything. But yet we are rotting from the inside out. And this point, this nation is the greatest empire in the world. And God says, I want everyone to know. I don't want anyone to think it's not going to come true. I want you to hear that it will be taken. In verse 2 it goes on and says, Her idols are humiliated. Her images are broken in pieces. For out of the north a nation comes up against her, which shall make her land desolate, and no one shall dwell therein. They shall move, they shall depart, both man and beast. And so we see the judgment that God is going to bring, but also God begins to speak to the nation of Israel who is in captivity, who is as low as they can go. And He says, In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, they and their children of Judah together, with continual weeping they shall come and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces toward it, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that will not be forgotten. So not only does God speak that this nation is going to be humbled, He says at that time the nation of Israel is going to begin to turn back 
to Him. And you can study history and see that uh, the Persian Empire rises and destroys the Babylonian Empire and the Jewish people begin to, to, to return to Israel and, and they were scattered many other places. But look what it says in verse 6. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. All who found them have devoured them. And their adversaries said, We have not offended because they have sinned against the Lord. The habitation of judgment, the Lord, the hope of their fathers. And he even says here that the other nations of the world don't see anything wrong with what they have done because they recognize that God used them to destroy this wicked nation of Israel for a season. And so I want you to see there in verse 10 though, because it says, And Chaldea shall become plunder. All who plunder her shall be satisfied, says the Lord. And if you think about this, this nation with the most powerful army in the world, this nation that has plundered and destroyed everyone. We know that they had overcome the Assyrian Empire. They had overcome Israel. They have overcome Egypt. There is no one that can stand against them. And the idea that someone is going to come into the heart of their country, into their capital, and plunder everything they have is just overwhelming. But tonight I don't want you to miss this, that no one is exempt from God's judgment. And so whether you think that you have more money than you could ever spend, or whether you think you have more intelligence than anyone else that's on this earth, whether you think there's no way that God could really deal with you, you are mistaken. And I really believe that this is so important tonight because what we have seen in our country and we are seeing from people is this idea that God cannot judge me. He can't judge my lifestyle. He can't judge my decisions. My life is mine to live as I see fit. Right? That's probably how you hear every discussion when you disagree with somebody over something the Bible says. It's probably, well, I feel or I think or I want or I am. And what we need to know tonight is that no one is bigger than the judgment of God. No one will be able to avoid the standards that God sets. That is true as an individual, that there is no one who can get into a right relationship with God any other way than Jesus Christ. As a family, you say, well, Jake, we've, we've served God or we've, we've got all this going for us. We are going to avoid any retribution or accountability to God. That's not true. Or even as a nation, we've seen it, right? We've seen our country literally blasphemy and defy anything that God has said. I have been um, following Gary Bryling's class, uh, Sunday School Notes, and he is teaching through the book of Genesis. And uh, he was teaching on a day of rest this week, and, uh, but he's been teaching about uh, the biblical account of creation and how it is impossible for a church to embrace a worldview other than the biblical version of creation. Six literal days in a, in a thousand year earth. And, and it's just the Bible completely falls apart 
when Genesis falls apart. And you say, well, Jake, and he's been studying about when it got into schools and when churches did and all of these things. And, and it has slowly began to erode. And we have seen that. But yet we need to be reminded that America is not bigger than the judgment of God. God will judge America just like He judged Sodom and Gomorrah and Babylon and Assyria, just like He is going to judge Persia. He is going to judge because no one is exempt from the judgment of God. Thoughts tonight. All right. Second thing I want to show you tonight, though, that even though no one is exempt from the judgment of God, God will not forget His promises. Because when we read the book of Jeremiah, we think it's all doom and it's all gloom and it's all judgment. But we see here that God will not forget His promises. Starting here in verse 11, "...because you were glad, because you rejoiced, you destroyers of my heritage..." Because you have grown fat like a heifer threshing grain, and you bellow like bulls, your mother shall be deeply ashamed. She who bore you shall be ashamed, but the least of the nations shall be a wilderness, a dry land and a desert. Because the wrath of the Lord, she shall not be inhabited, but she shall be wholly desolate. Everyone who goes to Babylon shall be horrified and hiss at all her plagues plagues excuse me but listen here in these verses as you go on here it talks about the fact that babylon here in verse 11 she has put yourself in array against babylon all around and you who bend the bow shoot at her spare no arrows for she has sinned against the lord and I want you to see this because he is just reiterating this judgment. But don't miss what he says in verse 18. And it's, it's the same theme all the way down there. In verse 18 he says, Though therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land, as I have punished the king of Israel. And don't miss this, but. But I will bring back Israel to his home, and he shall feed on Carmel and Bashan. His soul shall be satisfied on Mount Ephraim and Gilead. In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, but they shall not be found. And this is one of my favorite sayings, I believe, in the book of Jeremiah. For I will pardon those whom I preserve. I will pardon those who I preserve. I believe Monty actually saw, sung this song maybe recently or I heard it on the radio. I just can't think very well anymore, but it's, um, it's when mercy walked in. Did he sing that recently or am I completely making that up? Did he? I think he did. And it's this idea about a courtroom and judgment, and a guilty verdict, and then the fact that Jesus walks in to take our punishment, and it's mercy walks in. And that's what he says here to the nation of Israel. Because what he's talking about is judging and destroying 
and leveling everything out, but yet he tells this small group of people, these Israelites in this city, because if you're an Israelite, you're hearing this judgment and you're thinking, we've already went through it once. We already lived through it when Jerusalem was conquered. And here we are, we're going to be destroyed again in this city. And I think that this is important because God reiterates to them that the world might have forgotten that you are this people. You might think that you have been forgotten by God because of the situation. You might think that there is no hope or way out of this mess. But I have not forgot my promises to you. And I'm thankful for those promises. I'm thankful for the New Testament promises that when God comes and takes residence in me, that He is never going to leave. I am thankful for the fact that when God puts me in the palm of His hand, that what can separate me from His love? Nothing. I'm thankful that when Jesus died upon the cross and rose from the dead, that He said that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Those are promises. I'm glad that Jesus promised that He was going to a place, but that He would return one day. And as He's there, He is preparing a place for those that love Him. You see, the promises of God, they are something that we should know, that we should memorize, because the promises of God are special in the good times, but they make all the difference in the bad. You see, Israel was at a hopeless state. There was nothing they could do on their own. And God reaches down and speaks to them and says, I know it seems hopeless, it looks hopeless, and on your own it is hopeless. But never forget the promises that God makes. So, thoughts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can I expound to that? Yes, I think that is the entire struggle of that God is sovereign in His purposes, but yet man is responsible in His decisions. And if you are looking for an explanation better than that, I do not have one. <laughs> you asked that knowing that's what I was going to say. <laughs> but yes, I think that is the struggle that, yes, God uses them and it's the same thing, I think, about Judas Iscariot, right? Jesus brought him into the disciples knowing that he would betray him, right? That God had put that all into the works, but yet Judas was still responsible for his decision to what? Betray the Lord. He was still responsible for his decision to take his own life. And so um, I think it's the same the same picture that we see throughout the scriptures. All right. Any others? That is a wonderful question. Verses 21 through 32, and this is the theme that we started with. Just because God uses you doesn't mean you are right with Him. And we might have to break this down into two lessons because I'm not skipping near as many verses as I thought I was going up to. But in verse 21 it says, Go up against the land of Marathaim against it, 
and against the inhabitants of Pecod. Waste and utterly destroy them, says the Lord, and do according to all that I have commanded you. A sound of battle is in the land, and of great destruction. How the hammer of the whole earth has been cut apart and broken. How Babylon has become a desolation among the nations. I have laid a snare for you. You have indeed been trapped, O Babylon, and you were not aware. You have been found and also caught because you have contended against the Lord. The Lord has opened His armory and has brought out the weapons of His indignation. For this is the work of the Lord God of hosts in the land of the Chaldeans. Come against her from the farthest border. Open her storehouses. Cast her up as heaps of ruin and destroy her utterly. Let nothing be of her be left. And don't miss this verse. Slay all her bulls. Let them go down to the slaughter. Woe to them. And here it is. For their day has come, the time of their punishment, the voice of those who flee and escape from the land of Babylon declares in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance of His temple. What he says is those Israelites who are going to survive this event, who are going to come back to Israel, are going to finally say, God did provide vengeance. And that's what the Bible says, right? Vengeance is mine. But oh, I wish he would operate on my timetable. I think that that's the truth. But yet we see here, because these Israelites would have been thinking this whole time, God has abandoned us. God has forsaken us. How can God humble this group of heathens, the Babylonians, and, 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 and fulfill His promises to us. And God says, on that day, you will know. And so I want you to catch this tonight because God already knows the day that He is going to bring vindication. You just have to wait on it. You cannot be the executor of God's vengeance because God could use you to bring vengeance but you would not be who He wants you to be. You would still have to answer for that vengeance that you have brought in the name of the Lord. And this is very important tonight, I think, because it is something that all of us struggle with, this idea of vindication. We all want to be vindicated. If you've ever had anybody talking about you that in a way that's not true, everything in you wants to remain quiet, Right? You've never had an urge in your life to just get on Facebook. And I'm not on Facebook because every time I get on my wife for a minute, I think people get dumber every time I look at it. And it's full of church people that I think get dumber too. So I'm just, I'm being honest with you. I'm not calling you stupid because I don't want to sin, but dumb's a close second. And, uh, and if that's you tonight, just repent. Don't look at me like I'm being mean, but... It's so, that's what you want, right? I just want to get up there and put an eight-page essay about our church and, and, and things that I've heard over the years and why it's not true and why this isn't right and that's not right. And, and boy, I've typed some paragraphs over the years. I mean, we're talking books. And that's hard for me because, you know, as I tease Miss Johnson, I didn't have the good English teacher in high school. So my writing is atrocious. 
And you're thinking, I've read the bulletin in the newsletter, Jake. I know exactly how bad it is. And, and as right as I get ready to push that enter button or click that send button, the Lord, it's almost like He just pokes me in the forehead. He says, what is wrong with you? And then I begin to backspace. And I just hold that button and I think, that was really good. <laughs> that was really good stuff. How many times I've been stopped at Fred, when well, we used to have Fred's, or not, not very much Family Dollar, but Food Park or Ferris's, and someone will say, Jake, I heard this, and everything in me. Oh, I'm telling you, there is, I'm not even going to lie to you tonight. There is not one moment that my brain starts out by saying, just keep your mouth shut, Jake. It immediately goes to, well, you know what? I know who told you that. Let me tell you about them. So first it starts as a personal attack every time in my mind. Let me tell you who they really are and what really happened. And I can promise you I have not always responded the right way. Now I know you've never stumbled with that. You've never struggled. But it never honors the Lord. God's going to take care of it. It might be someday in heaven when you finally learn the truth. It might be in heaven someday when someone else learns the truth. But you have to trust that God is fighting the battle. You have to trust that God can protect the hearts of people who hear that slander. You have to trust that God can still use you to minister to people even though you feel that you can't. And that is really, one, back in April when I was struggling, one, it was health. First and foremost, it was a health issue. But two, it was that belief that I've been here so long and we've lost so many families and so many terrible things have been said about myself and the church over the years. How can I effectively minister to people when every time I go into a hospital room or every time I sit at a ball game, I'm just wondering, I wonder what they've heard. I wonder what they think about me. And God just had to remind me, it doesn't matter what they think about you. You have to live in such a way that when the lost make an accusation against you, the Bible says, that it doesn't have any grounds to stick. That's how you have to live. But outside of that, all you have to worry about is what God says about you. And that if you've sinned, repent. If you have done what you know is what God wanted you to, you have to trust. Those are the two things you have to learn to do. Repent when you've done what you shouldn't do. And trust God when you have. Trust that God can close mouths. God can open mouths. God can soften hearts. God can harden hearts. But you have to believe that vengeance is His. Thoughts tonight. All right. I want you to look at verse 32. And I want you to see this about Israel. Let's just do 31 too. Might as well. We're not going to make it as far as I wanted to tonight anyway. Might as well not miss any of the good stuff. Behold... I am against you, O most haughty one, says the Lord of hosts. 
for your day has come, the time that I will punish you, the most pride, proud shall stumble and fall, and no one will raise him up. I will kindle a fire in his city, and I will devour all around him. Do you see that when God decides that it's time for vengeance to be poured out? When it's God's time to vindicate, did you see what would happen there? Don't miss this in verse 32. And most proud shall stumble and fall, and who will raise him up? No one. When God finally says enough is enough, there is no one who can refuse him. And there is no one who can come along and give life to something that God has tore down. And so I think about this for one of two reasons. One, I think about churches and us as individuals when we become prideful. That when God humbles us, there is no way to raise ourselves up against Him. And two, when God decides to fight my enemies... It don't matter how many there are or how talented they are or how smart they are or how educated they are. No one will raise them up. And so it's a, it's a reminder to stay humble to me, but it's also a what? A reminder that God is big enough to fight the battles that I face. And so... Questions, thoughts. You know, that brings to my mind verse 32. You know, you brought up churches. You know, when he talks in when John talks in Revelation, you know, it said that your candlestick will be removed. That happens in a lot of churches. Well, we haven't done it this way in 50 years. Why, why do it now? Yeah. And, and when, I, when I hear that excuse, my sinner wants to come out real quick. It's like, you've done it that way for 50 years, and look where it's got you. Yeah. How well is that working for you? Yeah. And I think that's the hardest thing about churches. Let's just be clear. And this is no offense to young people, but you know me. He brought something up. I'm going to wade into it. That's just the way I operate. But, um, but I, think that I'm, I think there are two, two ways to look at this. I think that many people who have been in church, like you're talking about, that we've not changed anything in 50 years, there are two reasons that mindset comes. One is it's selfishness. They genuinely like it to be their way, the way they've had it. But two, I think there is another group of people that we have overlooked. And that is the people who have tried to change and be hurt. So for instance, let's try the new music. Let's, let's try the new Sunday school class. Let's try the new things. And then someone will try it and then they will make a disaster of it. Or they will, for instance... Um, in the modern-day church movement, you have the home groups that end up splitting and becoming their own churches. And so then you have an older generation of people that say, we don't want home groups because we've tried that twice and we lost 37 young families to this idea. The idea is not wrong. Home groups are not wrong. And not all home groups are bad. But sometimes that desire not to change is because one of selfishness, and that's sin, but two, I think it is pain that they've been hurt. I've seen it in, in people that I've pastored over the years, people who have come here to this church who have been hurt by a pastor or who've been hurt by a deacon or in most Baptist churches, you've been hurt by both. And, uh, 
And it's hard to trust. It's hard to take that step of faith. And so I, I think that in each one of those situations, we have to really pray for wisdom to know what it is and how to work through that. That is it a selfish issue, right? We're only going to sing hymns because I only like hymns. Or is it, hey, we tried to, new, to do new songs and we had three guitar players, two drummers, uh, a mandolin player, a violin, and, and they all got together and left <laughs> and left me sitting here holding the, I don't know what the word I'm looking for here. Yeah, holding the bag. And so I've seen that with deacons. Why deacons don't want to trust a pastor? Because they've had a pastor in the past that's either done something, right? Uh, had a problem at church, went across town, started a church, took 150 people. Well, that's, that, that causes a great insecurity in a deacon. But I also know pastors that don't want to go into churches because the deacons have ran them out of four different churches. And so I really think that as a church, we have to always think that way is why do I do what I do? Is it because of selfishness? I have no problem telling you that I am a hymn guy. All right? I am a Gaithers all the way. And if there's a hymn saying, I'm going. All right? Um, but I also recognize that if you're under... It's going to get me in some trouble here. If you're under 70, you probably enjoy some of the new stuff. That's okay. And so, as you know, Jamie does what? He mixes it, right? And so people that like all hymns think there's too many newer songs. And people that like newer songs, they think there are too many older songs. And you know what I've got to tell both of you? Get over it. It's that simple. Because it's the Christian thing to compromise as long as it's not on a sinful issue. And so, is it not as contemporary as a lot of people come? Not too long ago, we had a family that came in and said, well, this is just like my grandma and grandpa's church. And I went, holy moly, holy moly. I didn't think we were that backwards. And I asked someone else, I'm like, do you guys do any hymns at the church you come from? No, we've not done hymns in years. And I'm thinking, wow, but it's not an issue. Because why? I come to church to worship God, not with contemporary or traditional, not with loud or reverent. I come to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And so long as you're praying before you come to worship, we're praying before we have worship, we are praying about what is being said in the songs and in the sermon, then spirit and truth is all that matters. But what I have found is this. Spirit and truth matter until it goes against my preference. Right? It doesn't matter what the Bible says. It's right until it what? Goes against my preference. And so I agree with you 100%, Gary. I've, I've heard it in every church, every denomination. But I really think that as I've really tried to spend a lot of time with pastors who have been hurt and churches that have been hurt, I think both of those reasons come out a lot. And I, ultimately, I don't know the heart. Right, And so when someone says, well, that pastor, he did it this way and he ran the church into the ground, I don't know if they really feel that way or it's because he didn't come visit them when they had their colonoscopy. Who, you know, who knows? And uh, funny story, <laughs> funny story. Uh, my first year, <laughs> some of, Gary and some of these know this, my, my, uh, I think it was my first year here I went to church camp 
And as I was at church camp, a church member had, had said, Pastor, I'm having a surgery and, and I want you to come. And I said, well, I'm at church camp. I got two deacons that would love to come and visit with you. Well, if you know anything about church camp, there is no service there. And so like two hours later, when I got to a place where there was service, I had a, I had a phone call from this deacon that said, you need to call me immediately. And I don't think he was angry, but I could tell that something hadn't gone well. And I'm thinking, oh, this lady's died on the table. You know, and he goes, do you know what kind of surgery you sent us to? I said, I have no idea. I didn't ask. And he goes, it was a colonoscopy. <laughs> oh, so needless to say, over the last 10 years, with those two deacons, anytime I've ever asked them to go to a surgery, they've always asked me if I know what kind of surgery it is and so anyway just a, it just anyway so and i mean i'll come and pray with you before your colonoscopy don't worry about that but i'm not going to send anybody else so but uh really thoughts question that was a wonderful statement and thought gary i, I actually had that happen to me about a month ago <laughs> yeah it's always awkward true, true, true story yeah <laughs> all right last thing tonight we're going to do so we're yes Yeah. And um, I like the hymns and, and the Southern Gospel and the Gaithers, all of that. That always have. And so when this new contemporary came along, um, I'm working with the youth, and uh, we went up to um, Springfield at Christmas time for the youth encounter. And, uh, you know, they do that, I call it headbanging stuff, but it's not headbanging stuff. Right. Yeah. And the Lord just said, would you forget the beat? Listen to the words. Yeah. Listen to the words, and they're praising me. It's mm. a different beat than what you're used to. Yeah. So from that moment on, that was yeah. eight or nine years ago. Yeah. I didn't get to listen to the words of the New England Contemporary, and I've, some of them have become some of my favorite songs. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still at this phase. I'm still there. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Yeah, I, I know. I know. I know. Now, I'm not going to lie. I experienced that when I come here because at Blaze Chapel, we sing out of the Broadway hymnal from 1955. Oh, the oldie. And then the, the little blue one from 1925 or whatever it's from. So when we come here... And words are on the screen. It's just like not day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just. Yeah. I mean, so I, 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 I'm there every Sunday. I mean, because. Yep. Yeah. And there are so many other things other than music that we don't even think about that become those issues like that as well. And um, but absolutely. The last thing we have tonight, and we're going to stop, and we'll just do 51 next week, is that God's judgment is absolute. God's judgment is absolute. And I know that I mentioned this last week about parents and the threat of judgment, right? If you do that one more time here in Walmart, I'm going to spank you. When, when a parent says that, I'm not going to lie to you, I creepily listen. I mean, I could already have what I need, but I'm hanging out in that aisle just a little bit longer because that kid's going to do it again. And I'm not worried about the kid doing it again. That's a kid. I want to so if the parents has got the courage 
to do what they just said. And I can tell you almost always the parent does what? Nothing. Warns them again and again and again and again. But I want you to hear tonight that God's judgment doesn't operate that way. When God declares judgment, His judgment is absolute. Look here in verse 33 through the end of it. Thus says the Lord of hosts, The children of Israel were oppressed along with the children of Judah. All who took them captive have held them fast. They have refused to let them go. Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is His name. He will thoroughly plead their case that He may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. So God's judgment is absolute, but also God's rescue is absolute. A sword is against the Chaldeans, says the Lord, against the inhabitants of Babylon and against her princes and her wise men. A sword is against the soothsayers and they will be fools. A sword is against their mighty men and they will be dismayed. A sword is against their chariots and horses and against all the mixed people who are in their midst. And they will become like women. A sword is against her treasures and they will be robbed. A drought is against her waters, and they will be dried up. For it is the land of carved images, and they are insane with their idols. Don't miss that. God tells them why the judgment has come. They are idolatrous heathens. But don't miss this. Therefore the wild desert beasts shall dwell there with the jackals, and the ostriches shall dwell in it. It shall be inhabited no more forever, nor shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. And don't miss this. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, says the Lord, so no one shall reside there, nor son of man dwell it. And I want you to see this because God names every classification of people. He talks about royalty. He talks about wise men. He talks about mighty men. He talks about the military men. He talks about every class of people that no one is going to avoid this judgment. And I think this is important because look what it says in verse 43. The king of Babylon has heard the report about them and his hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of him, pangs as of a woman in childbirth. And then it just gives the specifics about how God is going to destroy him. But look at verse 46 and we'll be done. At the noise of the taking of Babylon, the earth trembles, and the cry is heard among the nations. He says that it is going to be total. It is going to be shocking. It's kind of like this idea that I think all of us or most of us were extremely surprised by how fast Afghanistan fell to the Taliban. It is this idea that 20 years of sacrifice by America's greatest men and women, our armed forces, the billions of money, dollars of money that we have invested there, the time and the effort, 
at least they would have been able to at least put up a fight. But I watched the news and I was just in awe. I couldn't believe it. How this happened. And I got lots of feelings on it. And I'd be more than happy to tell you all about them outside of the pulpit. All right? More than happy to. But it was just shocking to me. Many of you probably remember where you were on 9-11. I was sitting in the basement at the old high school talking to a person in the, in the cafeteria area when that happened. Some of you remember other significant events. Um, uh, the fall of um, the South in uh, 70... Oh, when, when they were airlifting people out. Uh, yes, yeah, 70... 75. You remember that. I wasn't born till 85, so I'll take your word for it. Those are earth-rattling events in our life, right? But what he's saying is this is not just an earth-rattling event for some people. He says it is going to be heard among everyone. It is going to be earth-rattling. It is going to be something that rocks people and nations and empires to their core because God has declared His judgment on them. And so tonight I want you to think about this for us as New Testament believers trying to share the gospel with lost people. God's judgment is final. And for someone who dies without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, friends, it don't matter if they are members of a church. It doesn't matter if they are baptized. It does not matter if they are Sunday school teachers. It does not matter. Unless you be born again, you cannot know and have a relationship with God. And when that day comes and someone dies without Jesus Christ, the Bible never teaches the doctrine of purgatory. It's not in this book that you and I study. When you take your last breath is where you will spend eternity. Except for the lost, they will be thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death, which is the ultimate punishment, but separated from God or with God. There is nothing that changes that judgment after God has declared it. And so tonight I want you to think about that because for that person, it is going to be earth shattering. The Bible talks about that. Depart from me for I never... And so tonight I want you to think not just about nations being judged, not just about people being judged on this earth, but the greatest absolute final judgment that God gives is the day of your death and mine when we will spend eternity somewhere. And so thoughts, questions... Comments, disagreements. Not a word. I walked in while you were talking about the things that people separate on, the real purpose of the church being here is to evangelize. That's Christ's last words to the disciples.
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, I, and I've had I've had to get creative with that, you know, because it seems I always finish up a message with, you know, Acts 1 8 and, you know, Mark 12, love, love God and love your neighbor, you know, because that's what we're called to do. I said, I've, I've had to get creative, you know, job security. I've, I've, I've sent people letters, you know, about once a quarter said, hey, we, we'd love to see you church. Utilize Facebook, texting people, calling people. Because with COVID, you never really know who wants you to come to their door, who doesn't. You know, so I try to be respectful of that. And just just time, you know. We don't have the time. You know, so I had to be creative. Yeah, I think I think the answer to a lack of evangelism is a deeper love for the Lord. Because the more that I know what my salvation is and who He is, it should make me want the people that I care about the most to know Him. And I think the reason we don't share our faith, and that's just my personal opinion, and you can disagree with me and be wrong, it doesn't bother me at all, is one, it's fear. But two, I really think that most people think they have a strong, vibrant, healthy relationship with God and don't. I want to just say this. If you are not reading and praying every day from the scriptures, your relationship with God is, is not intimate. It's not close. And that might sound cruel and mean, but it's true. I know my wife and I do not have near as many conversations now as when we first got married. Right? We talked about everything when we first got married. And now it's like, did anybody die? No. Good day. All right? And, and it's, like I said, I've told you numerous times, it's been a hard time for us. And we've still had our struggles. And it's because we don't have the time that we should for each other. And we don't make the effort. I'm, I'm pointing the blame on us. I'm not. And so because of that, um, we are, we're on the same team. Uh, we love each other, which I love her, I don't, you know, but, uh, but it's not the way it was. And so many people are eating yesterday's manna when God only provided manna what? Daily. And so I really think that that's the problem, Gary. I think that our churches are full of lost people and baby Christians, and when they will grow in their love and dedication to Him, I think it's just an overflow. I think you cannot help but talk about Jesus the more that he's done in your life. And, uh, and I just believe that. And so I, that's always my prayer is that God would be working in people's lives so that they minister out of the overflow. As you know, preaching out of the overflow, not just I'm working on a sermon to give to you, it is overflowing out of me when I deliver it. So. And you can disagree. I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I live with seven females. I'm used to being told I'm wrong. So it won't offend me at all. Yeah. The children come along, and then eventually, though, if the Lord allows, you end up as two. 
-hmm. And if you do not cultivate that relationship with each other from the first day to the last day, when the children are gone, you have nothing. You have no nothing. You have yep. nothing. You've got to cultivate that relationship. And I believe that's true with the good Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm. The first day that we come to know him, goodness, we're newlyweds. Okay? And if we don't cultivate that relationship all along the way with prayer and Bible reading and worship and, and fellowship with Christian brothers and sisters and all of that. I agree. You end up. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, think about this, and you can you can don't have to respond, but how many families when their kids are little are so involved in church, right? We gotta have them here. They've gotta be here. It's the backbone of what they're like. Their kids get a little older, and it's like, well, you know, we've got so much going on and and so much to do, and we're in that phase right now. We're struggling with that decisions and decisions like that. But yet, okay, well, it's not that important, right? And then once the kids leave the house, mom and dad usually just drop out of church altogether, right? Because they were coming for their kids instead of for themselves. And so that's why no matter why you come, or and I think you ought to bring your kids, and I think you ought to drag them here. I think there's, no matter what they think, bring them anyway. But you have to make sure that I'm going for me. And I don't know how many times that's happened. And here's just a perfect example. And, and this is going to upset some people, and I really don't care that either. It's like, hey, youth programs are over on Sunday night, right? No more wanna. Let's just take the summer off. It's like, you know, we got church all through the summer. And yes, I know it's hard to keep kids, and I know they can get kind of rambunctious, but I've never told a person yet to get that noisy kid out of the sanctuary in, in 10 years. I've wanted to. <laughs> I've wanted to. My own sometimes. But, but you have to want to come and say, I want to be fed. Wednesday night Bible study, I know it's long and it's sometimes boring and maybe most of the time boring, but, but yet the Bible says it never returns what? So you will never waste your time by going to where the Word of God is being taught or preached. Never. Even if the preacher stutters and stammers and, and even if it's not as good as it could be, I promise you that you will always get more out of a sermon than you will a Netflix heathen television show. You say, well, i got to get caught up on 13 episodes or whatever the show is. You're not going to get anything out of that. 45 minutes of me rambling, you will at least get a few nuggets that hopefully will help you love God and serve Him more. And so I really need to stop before I literally offend everybody that's here. <laughs> but... Uh, Mm -hmm. It's also our compassion for the lost. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know, you know, through the whole scriptures, these warnings are coming. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to walk past these folks on the street, knowing that that's going to be their end, should just rip our hearts out. It should. I mean, it did the Lord, right? He looked out over, his, over Israel and said, you know, how I'd like to drug you, drug you to, to, to draw you in, you know. And so I think we see that for sure. But anything else before we pray? Because, I, like you said, I, like I said I don't want to make everybody mad tonight. More so than usual. But how can we, first of all, celebrate with you in praise reports? I want to start with praise reports. 
Well, we had we had our homecoming service on Sunday. There, this may not sound like a whole lot. There, there was 